don't know. It's the American Soccer Show. I'm Emmett McConnell, and I'm joined once again by Toronto FC enthusiast Pat Murphy. Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Not as well as I would be doing if my beloved Toronto FC had beaten Seattle. It seems like you're supporting a brand new team every time we talk. If that's not the case, I don't know. Uh, Maybe I'm giving you a hard time, but MLS Cup Final did wrap up, and it was that Toronto who, uh, and we were talking a little bit during the game, they looked good, but uh, not good enough. Came away losers in this one, 3-1, and that means Michael Bradley will not have his option taken up for $6.5 which can't tell if Toronto's, like, happy or upset about that. I I can I would assume they're ecstatic that they don't have to pay Michael Bradley six and a half million dollars next year at the age of whatever age he is thirty two, and athleticism falling off by the minute. Uh, so I would think Toronto's ecstatic about that, but not so happy about the result. Well, let's be fair. One, Michael Bradley had a a very good game. He was solid. I w- I will agree with that. I've heard he was the best player on the pitch. I, I might disagree with that, but I thought he was good. Yeah. Yeah, I thought he was good. He definitely did a good shift for Toronto, sitting in front of the defense. Uh, and, and the thing was, Seattle allowed Toronto the ball. Yes, I, which is I, what, that was something, yeah, that we were very interested in before the game. Like, who would kind of take ownership of the game? Who would control possession? And it was Toronto, the team on the road. I think if Seattle wanted to, they could have controlled the game. Because if you go position by position, Seattle's got a stronger roster. Yes, Outside of Nicola Benazé, Michael Bradley, uh, uh, yeah, I was getting there. Alejandro Sorry. Pozuelo. There we go. Got <laughs> it. Um, you know, I'll throw in Auro because I think he's a pretty underrated right back uh, because yeah, he came he came into Toronto when they were in uh, a terrible down year. Yes. But outside of those guys, position by position, I think we would say. Seattle's better. And even if you include them in, right? Michael Bradley versus Gustav Svensson. Gustav Svensson doesn't get credit, but this is a World Cup quarterfinalist with Sweden. Uh, A guy who can play center back, who can play in the midfield. He's not asked to possess the ball, but he can do it. I'll say Bradley might be the better in possession. But then Roldan versus Marky Delgado. I'll take Roldan. I'll take Brad Smith over Justin Morrow. Uh, Leerdam versus Aro, I think is a toss-up. Uh, but then you get into the attacking players, what really matters. Nico Lodero, Raul Rui Diaz, Jordan Morris. I think versus Pozuelo, Osorio, and Benazé, I, I go Seattle. I would say if they wanted to, they could have had 65% possession instead of 35 Yeah, but they stuck with what worked for them throughout the playoffs. You know, they, they were kind of a team that, I don't want to say they sat on the back foot, but they were organized. They knew, you know, they knew how to get it done. Very experienced team, similar to Toronto. Tons of playoff experience, obviously. We should mention part, you know, part three of this MLS Cup final series, third time in four years, um, and Seattle gets the rubber match. But a ton of uh, ton of playoff experience on the team, and they kind of just did what worked for them throughout the playoffs. They were kind of conceding possession, hit on the counter, and allowed that star quality that you mentioned up top, and Rui Diaz, Morris, um, Ladero, and then Victor Rodriguez. You got a shout as well, coming off the bench and. Scoring a fantastic second goal for them, showing some attacking quality off the bench as well. Because Jovan Jones struggled, frankly, in this game. I didn't think he was very good at all. But yeah, Seattle got it done. I thought, as you mentioned, that Toronto was the better team for, I would say, 
close to three quarters of this game, but they just couldn't convert the chances. Josie didn't start again. They they got him in a late cameo, and he was able to get a goal. Not not a late cameo, probably about 20 minutes, but he was able to get a goal, but it was too little too late. You could kind of tell, at least for me, the way they played in that first half to come away with it with no goals and still be nil-nil at the half was a very bad sign. And at that point, I got a pretty bad feeling about Toronto's chances. Yeah, and honestly, the playoffs looked pretty similar for both teams across the board. Uh, Toronto, you know, they controlled long pace parts of the game. Excuse me. Long parts of the game. They were in the attacking third a lot, but they just seemed to lack a little creativity. I would definitely say that kind of comes down to Josie Altador not being ready, uh, putting that all on Pozuelo to play the false nine. So he's not only the striker, he's also the number 10. He's the creator. Uh, I don't really see the wingers that they had as guys who ran off enough. Uh, Subasa Endo, I think was... I mean, he's a runner, but not a lot of actual purpose in the running, it feels like. Yeah, he still, I think, could work on that. And yeah. Nicola Benize is a guy who wants the ball at his feet. Uh, he, you know, He's a winger on the left with, who's right-footed who wants to cut in. He's not the guy yeah. who wants to run beyond, like Jordan Morris, who I yeah, think... Yeah, and he got, he got one decent chance in this game, and... Fry made a pretty good stop on him. In the Very good half, stop, yes. That was pretty much it, yeah. Uh, and I actually thought Benize was mostly to blame for the first goal. He tries to win the ball from Leerdam, who just kind of pulls it back and then pushes it forward, and Benize is just run right past him. And that yeah. gives him the time to get his head up, smash the ball across, and, well, takes deflections, but that wouldn't yeah. have happened if Benize had just stepped in front of his man. Again, you fell for Toronto, though. That was another... Just kind of, I don't want to say a fluke. It was, you know, he hit it well. Leerdam hit it well. He's in the box. Anything can happen. But yeah, definitely an own goal. Even though MLS generously gave the goal, it was an own goal. Leardom, yeah, which was kind of ridiculous. But I like that John Champion on the broadcast called MLS out for doing that. So shout out for him. Shout out to him for doing that. We love us some John Champion. Him and Adrian Healy, I think, are as much as I like hearing American voices. They're, they're, they're top notch. They're staples of the American game at this point. Um, you mentioned Victor Rodriguez earlier. Somehow won MVP uh, with the yeah, game-winning was, goal after yeah. playing 30 actually, minutes. Wait, he, I didn't even see that, actually. He won MVP of the game? He yeah. won man of the match. He got MLS Finals MVP. Yeah, that's uh, a little ridiculous. <laughs> we mentioned he's a really good player, and he saw it in Very the goal. Talented. Fantastic yeah. combination. But he struggled to stay healthy. And that Seattle first 11, you just replaced Jovan Jones with Victor Rodriguez. And they had stretches in the beginning of the season where they were untouchable. Of course, in those games, they were controlling the ball. I thought tactically, Seattle was very, very interesting because, as we mentioned, they could have taken the game to Toronto. But they said, this is what works. We're only going to send three men forward at any given time. It's going to be Jordan Morris, Nico Lodero, and Raul Rui Diaz. When we gain possession, we're not going to expand. We're not going to spread the field and swing a ball around and uh, cross the field. When they won it, they only sent, you know, the goals you'll see, there end up being four or five men being put forward, and that's how they get the advantage on those. But even then, that's a pretty small number of people when you look at teams like LAFC, even Toronto, who had six people around the box. And when they yeah, got I... won the ball on one side, they wouldn't switch it. It would just go up the wing, combination play up the wing into the attacking third, and it was only then when they would even think about moving the ball into the middle of the field. And it was yeah, just I mean, all sorry, all ahead. based on the defense. I just wanted to point out how uh, how interesting that was. And I do this uh, video series. I'm going to shamelessly plug. 
that I call a second look, and be on the lookout for one of those videos coming out tomorrow. Check it out, people. Take a second look. Watch the video. Uh, it was interesting because, as we mentioned, as I mentioned at least like three times now, Seattle could have, but they decided to play like this, and I thought it made Bradley look better than he actually is. And, of course, I am a Bradley defender. I think he's better than most people give him credit for. And he gets more credit in this game than I think he deserves. Because Seattle were like, oh, well, you know, try to play into the ball up the wing. Try to play into Rui Diaz and run off. And it's not going to work very often. So Bradley will look good when he wins that ball nine times out of ten. Yeah, I mean, I thought also they didn't pressure Bradley much where he kind of struggles. When he's on the ball, he's kind of good at those long diagonals when no one's pressuring him. And as we said, Seattle was kind of sitting back. So I did think that made the game a little easier on Bradley. Ultimately, it didn't matter because... Like we said, Seattle had the same kind of game plan. They sat in, they let their attacking quality take over, and then, you know, it kind of goes back to what your your beloved Arsene Wenger said, that famous quote of, it's easier to play without the ball than it is to play with the ball. And Seattle kind of took that philosophy through the entire playoffs, and they, uh, they rode the talent to MLS Cup. It's so interesting because how many coaches come into MLS and say, anywhere, they come into anywhere and they say, we're... You know, we're going to play this expansive attacking football and it's going to be revolutionary and the fans are going to love it and we're going to feed off the energy and this this place is going to be a fortress. And then you get the likes of Orlando. You get the likes of Cincinnati, who I thought being an Ohio team would go for the blue-collar soccer that Columbus has seemed to adopt. Well, I'm not Out- even sure if Cincinnati knew what kind of soccer they were going for, to be fair. Correct, but... When you saw the kind of signings that they were looking at making, okay, it was either defensive bids or forwards. Yeah. Uh, which is worrying because I thought I thought that meant they were going to play defensive counterattacking. And look throughout the league and outside of Seattle, how many coaches are willing to put defense first? I think you could look in a certain way, Jesse Marsh and that initial stint under Chris Armas as yeah, a team. In a much def- different way, though. Yeah, in a, yeah but it's a team that had a defense-first mentality, not in sitting back and countering, but in the press, in we're going to put it upfield, and then we're going to press. They have the ball, they're going to make the mistake, and then we're going to win it, and then we're going to punish them in two passes. And the Philadelphia Union, to a certain extent this year. But But outside of... Yeah, and the difference between those two, like you said, outside of those teams, there's not many others. And the difference between the Red Bulls and the Union and Seattle is that when Seattle actually gets the ball in those situations, and they're in the attacking third, they have... tremendous individual quality to actually actually create chances. The Red Bulls have struggled for years to actually break down teams in the final third. The Union, you know, had had a solid year this year, but I still would say they lack the playmakers that Seattle has. The Union's strength came from Harris Madunian in defensive midfield, and it came from uh, overlaps from guys like Kai Wagner. Uh, But you're right, and I, I only mentioned those two teams because... How many teams do we see who are more like Seattle in their defensive efforts that sit back and want to counter? Because I mentioned those teams defensively almost as just like throwing a bone. Every other team is like, this is how we're going to play. We're going to try to control the game, and you have to disrupt us. And I'm wondering how many coaches don't come in the league and say, okay, I'll disrupt you. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times it's, you know, that kind of philosophy is born out of necessity where you have to play that way because you just don't have the talent where you have to sit back, but it's really not sitting and countering because you're very, very rarely countering. You're kind of just holding on. You look at teams like 
mean, I don't want to throw too much shade at them, but like Colorado, um, Montreal, although they had a couple of decent years, but you know, a lot of sitting back countering, uh, Houston actually had that little spurt with Elise and Kyoto when those guys were really on their games. Um, I think it was the last season they had that, uh, good stretch for or two seasons ago. They had it won them the open cup. Yeah. But, to be fair. But, but, but yeah, true. But for the most part, like a lot of teams do that out of necessity because they don't have the talent. Seattle has the talent. And when you have the talent and you have the defensive discipline, I mean, you can obviously, you can beat anyone on any, on any given day. And in a single elimination format, we should say again, they highlight that, that they've switched to single elimination this year. You're going to have more opportunities uh, um, for sides that maybe aren't quite as good as the top, top teams to still win. Of course, parity, as you met, plays into that, uh, of what you're mentioning of, being from necessity, and, and Montreal is correct. Montreal is a team who has put a defense-first mentality recently, uh, and as you said, that was more of necessity. Uh, Houston, on the other side, I there was enough talent there. They, they did it on purpose, and they had a little stretch for a while where they were it looked good with Elise and Kyoto and, and Minotas, but but then it just kind of fell apart. They didn't have the talent in the back. They they started leaking goals, and the midfield wasn't good enough either. And Houston was an interesting one because. There was some talent there. Kiki Strunas, I think, is a pretty good center back. Uh, obviously, Demarcus Beasley, uh, Graham Lundqvist. Uh, there were players there. Uh, AJ Delagar. So, obviously, not guys who you think, oh, this is the kind of defense that can control the game. We can play it back to them, and they'll get it out the other way. But talent. Whereas Montreal looked in the back line, and outside of Dan Lovitz, you saw Bakary Sanya, who you know barely had two legs left to walk on. Is he still on the roster? Is Bakarisan still with Montreal? I don't even know. We'll get our crack producer on that. <laughs> uh, speaking of Montreal, big news, just announced today, the new head manager, head manager, head coach manager, will be Terry Henry, former Red Bull enthusiast winger. How about that? Yeah. I, I, I have a complicated, you know, relationship with Henri. Obviously, I like him. He's a Red Bull. Red Bull's my number one team. I am also a Tottenham fan, however, so that made my relationship with Henri a little complicated when he first got to Red Bull Arena. Um, but yeah, I'm happy for him. Happy for Montreal that they made a bit of a splash. Um, I, those who have followed Henri will know that his managerial career got off to not the best start. You could You're say putting it nicely Monaco, at Monaco. Um, had tremendous struggles there, but. Hopefully he's learned from that. He does know the intricacies of the league. I don't think he'll be, you know, we've talked about managers in the past who have come in from Europe who are kind of naive about MLS, think they can walk all over it. I would think Henri played in the league, obviously, for a long time. He'll understand the dynamics much better than a lot of other foreign managers who come in. So, you know, I hope the best for him. And, you know, Montreal, it's a great city. Um, Their owner is eccentric, for sure, and has had his problems in the past, but... I think he's also a guy who's willing to spend if it's on the right players. So, you know, I, I hopefully we, we see some big improvement from Montreal and, and a couple big signings this offseason. Uh, it's certainly interesting. Henri, obviously a guy with talent, hasn't shown the coaching chops yet, but let's be fair. He was at Monaco at a time where he was following Leonardo Jardim, who, if you'll remember, was the coach of that thrilling Champions League semifinal run of Kylian Mbappe, Bernardo Silva, Fabinho, and that midfielder we all love to hate, Tiamun Bakayoko, (laughs) who, for some reason, I still hear about all the time from Chelsea fans. (laughs) So Jardim, obviously a fantastic coach bringing these guys through. 
then was like dead last. They sacked him, brought in Henri, who didn't improve anything. So I think it could be fair to say it wasn't exactly Henri's fault that things were terrible in Monaco. And I'm not going to, you know, split hairs here. They were, it was bad. Yeah, now were, he comes in. Things aren't great in Montreal. But you have to say they're looking up. They took up the option. for. We all thought Ignacio Pati would leave. But apparently the club is insisting he stays for the 2020 season. They're taking up the planning on taking up the option. Uh, Piatti's uh, wife is due for a child and has returned to Argentina where he wants to also return. So it gets a little complicated. Apparently they're going to reevaluate in the summer, but hopefully have in the beginning of the season. Uh, obviously when he's healthy and fit, Piatti's like a top 10 player in the league. He's unbelievable. Maybe he's getting a little bit old now. Yeah. But they also made like four signings to try to replace him. Guys like Lassie Lapalainen, guys like Bohan Kirkic. So there's still talent there. The question that I have surrounding Henri is what kind of manager is he going to be? Is he going to be a Jim Curtin who started in the youth ranks and relies on the academy, giving guys chances, in a way being a man manager, it seems? Is he a, a Bob Bradley who's... You know, a man manager, but also a tactician who's really got the game plan down, or Guillermo Barrochelotto, or Pep Guardiola, whomever you want to compare him to. Is he going to be a Tata Martino, a guy who is a student of the game, but also gets along with his players? Is he going to be a, a Wilmer Cabrera, who allegedly did not get along so well with his players? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I think, in terms of, you know, you talked about will he, you know, rely on the academy or will he? try to make some bigger signings. I would think uh, if you're Montreal, you already make the splashy signing and bring him in. I would think they have some other big signings planned, maybe at least one other big signing planned. Um, I don't think their academy, as far as I can tell, just thinking back on the homegrowns that they've had, it has not exactly been fruitful. I don't know what kind of talent they have coming through the pipeline. I'm sure there's, there is some talent there, but they really have not utilized the academy much. So it would be a big switch to see that. And then I also think it's interesting to note there was, you know, a lot of talk and when Henri was playing for the Red Bulls about how he was interested in managing when his when his playing career was over, but he wasn't sure he could get into it because he himself was such a good player. And there's a lot of good there's a lot of talk on this in many sports, not just soccer. When you're such a great player, it's hard to, you know, teach other players as a coach because things just come naturally to you because you're so talented. Correct. That's why you see a lot of times coaches are maybe not like elite elite players like some of these mls coaches were solid players jim Curtin, you mentioned greg vanning some of these guys but they weren't stars in the league um so that'll be an interesting dynamic as well and i wonder if that was something that maybe played Henri when he was at monaco rarely are these superstar players great managers pep guardiola and it's tough Mar- to think mauricio of pochettino Ronald Koeman is a good manager, not great. Carlo Ancelotti, Roberto Mancini. I mean, there, there's good ones, but it's tough. A lot of the times, I mean, I love when a guy like Jose Mourinho, who like barely played pro, comes Maurizio through. Maurizio Sarri was an accountant. Sorry, yeah, of course. Um, Andre Villas-Boas, of course, who was, you know, a young prodigy who kind of fell yeah. off. Kind of the next Mourinho and didn't work out. Yeah. When it comes to the impact side... They do kind of have this hodgepodge roster. So, of course, like any any team, they have a decent amount of young and homegrown players. 
they have some who are got a little bit of time last year. Guys like Matthew Chanier. Obviously, Anthony Jackson Hamel is a homegrown, but he's 26 now. Yeah, and he hasn't really shown too much um, in his time. Other than that, I mean, they have Shamit Shom, who's a generation Adidas player. Yeah. They have other, but then they have young guys who aren't homegrown, but are you know probably close enough, like uh, Balu Tabla, who uh, was loaned from Barcelona. Is uh, he who, back there? How, like, is that extending into next season? He's on the official roster. Gotcha. Uh, they have guys like Orgy Okonkwo. Yeah. Things fall apart that. right there. He's okay. 21. Uh, but he's Lassie Lapalainen. He's 21. So they have these guys who are young. But like the U.S. national team, which we'll get into later, it seems like they have sort of a, a lost age group, a lost generation of players. Because then you have Bakari Sanya, 36. Yuka Raitala, 31. You have... Piatti, 34. Uh, Lovitz kind of fills in that age range at 28. Bohan is 29. Rod Fanny's still on the roster at 37. So there's a pretty big jump from the guys who are 20, 19, to the guys who are, you would say, potentially on the other side of that, older players. Yeah. Safir Titer's 27. Aruti's 28. So they, they kind of fill in the gaps there. Yeah, I would say looking at the roster that they do have more homegrowns than I thought they had. I don't really know any of them off the top of my head, but maybe they are transitioning a little more, like most teams in MLS, to give credit to really the whole league, uh, signing more homegrowns. So hopefully we see that become more of a focus for them. And I also want to mention, as I am so want to do on this podcast, Emmett, good goalkeeper in Montreal. I trust Evan Bush. So another good cornerstone there for, T- for Thierry. He's 33, so he's probably got a good couple years left. Yeah, he's a keeper. He's got plenty of time left. I am split on Evan Bush because... I'm a believer. I'm an Evan th- Bush believer. I think Montreal gives him so many chances. That's fair. To prove himself. He gets, he gets many chances to prove himself. And I think this year he was good, but you don't know with him. Sometimes he's just... He's really shaky. He's not making saves you expect him to make. Uh... But he's reliable. He's MLS proven. I wouldn't say he's an issue. I don't think you have to replace this guy. I think Definitely he's going to stay at the club for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about Montreal in this MLS Cup final episode. <laughs> uh, we're just going to bring it back a little bit to kind of tie a bow on that MLS Cup final. Seattle Sounders, their second ever MLS Cup win. Uh, honestly, they've made the playoffs every single year in their existence, which is pretty incredible. Uh, and we'll be excited to see where they go. Credit to Brian Schmetzer, because this guy took over for the legend that is Siggy Schmid uh, when he was fired, and nobody really knew what to expect from this guy, and all he's done is won them two MLS Cups, uh, and I think he he came in in that 2016 season and got them there, and then lost in the, uh, what was it, the quarterfinals last year. So, really impressive what Seattle's done, and... Give them more credit. They were kind of the forebears to the Atlantas, to the LAFCs, who can kind of come in and just immediately be top teams in the league. Yeah, I always lose track of what, you know, point oh we're on, MLS 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, but what, one of those Seattle basically founded and took the league to a new level for sure. In terms of Brian Schmetzer, you mentioned him. He's just done an amazing job. He's a local guy too. He, you know, he's a sounder through and through. So credit to him. He did an, another really good job with this team. All the guy does is win. 
And you talk about how consistent they've been as well. And there was a lot of talk about this that I heard on other podcasts and articles and stuff. You listen to other podcasts that aren't ours? Blasphemy. Only occasionally. Would you say, and I would would definitely agree with this, that the Sounders are the team of the decade in MLS? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there is a case case for the Galaxy, but I just think Seattle's been way more consistent. Since the Landon Donovan, Robbie Keane era has ended with the Galaxy, they've been really up and down. How many wooden spoons do uh, Seattle Sounders have? <laughs> I'm not sure off the top of my head. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a big old fat zero. Yeah, I'm thinking none. Yeah, <laughs> none would be the answer. How many did the Galaxy have? Did they get a wooden spoon? They got a wooden spoon. Yeah, I, I think, think that makes a, a decision I think that for me. It right there. Yeah, uh, the Galaxy. Of course, we will mention three MLS Cups. Uh, I'm assuming we're taking this from 2010 to 2019 for the last decade. Galaxy yeah. in 2011, 2014, uh, and 2012. Skip the year there. Uh, they did have to beat... I mean, you look at them now, it's, they're not impressive, but the revolution in the Houston Dynamo twice. Obviously, that was back when it was still kind of like MLS 1.5, yeah. where they, the DP rule had kind of come in, and it was like <laughs> we were getting these big names. Yeah. Plus, it has to be graded on a curve, because the Galaxy, the league makes a new rule for them every year. So they, they, they have that Correct. advantage as well. Yeah. They're on some but sort of curve. If you look at the Seattle kind of resume, I believe since the decade started, they have three Open Cups. They won the Supporter Shield in 2014. They've won now two MLS Cups. And since 2010, in terms of total games won in MLS, they've won 10 more than any other club. They're, they have 176 to 166 for the Red Bulls, 165 for the Galaxy. I would say, yeah, the best team in the past 10 years – uh, a team that has been revolutionary to MLS, been huge. You know, I know everyone was saying, like, you know, MLS Cup office is sweating, is freaking out when LAFC, <laughs> when uh, Atlanta weren't yeah. weren't there. But, I mean, does any other team deserve MLS's praise and undenying admiration than Seattle for what they've done? I don't know. Um it's, it's been unbelievable what they've done. Uh, as you mentioned, they have four U.S. Open Cup titles. One Supporter yeah, I think, Shield, I think two they MLS Cups. So it wouldn't count for our rankings of this. But yeah, they are three in the, yeah. Yeah. Uh Just unbelievable. Oh, and did you know they have an MLS Fair Play Award in 2017? Oh, I didn't even know they had that, but good for them. Did you even know that was a thing? I mean, you just go through their record. From 2010, conference semifinals, 11, conference semifinals, conference finals, conference semifinals, conference finals, always in the mix of it. Conference semifinals. Then they're the champions in 2016, runner-up, semifinals, champions. They're always right there. And that kind of consistency, if you look across any sport over the last 10 years, you'd say the Patriots, the Golden State Warriors... Is it too crazy to put them in that kind of conversation? I mean, if we're talking, or is that North, is that recency bias? Yeah, I mean, if we're talking the North American sports in the past decade, I mean, they're definitely up there. They're the best team in MLS for sure. And like you said, you can look at basketball. There's a couple teams, the Warriors in particular, and then the Patriots have been super steady as well. But yeah, I mean, they're they're up there for certain. And here's the crazy thing: they've only finished first in the conference once. That yeah, one they've only won the shield. one shield. Yeah. So this is a team that just, they know how to get it done in the playoffs. Exactly. They've never finished lower than fourth. 
But they've done that three times. Four times. Ooh, bad math. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to throw this out here now as a sort of pivot. Is Brian Schmetzer is my new... Uh, He's my new love. I love Brian Schmetzer. I'm going to come out on the podcast. I'm going to say it. We all want to see attacking soccer, correct? correct? We love to see it. But I have this admiration for coaches that are willing to do things and think outside the box. When Seattle did play with the ball, and I just had the point at uh, Victor Rodriguez's goal, the second goal, was like a four-pass combination down the left side, playing Rodriguez across the middle over the box, and he curls it to the back post, was the kind of soccer that, and as much as Toronto controlled the game, they never had an interplay like that. It was move the ball side to side, move it forward, okay, lose it, gets cleared, win it back. But it doesn't have, and that's the kind of beautiful aspect to the game that we want to see. And so I'm going to throw it out there. I want my love, Brian Schmetzer, and this is getting a little weird now, so I'm going to wrap it up. To be the U.S. men's next U.S. men's national team coach, Ooh. I said it. I'm gonna let you respond before I back myself up. I mean, I won't go that far. <laughs> I will. I will give Brian Schmetzer credit. I thought he did a good job. Obviously, he's done a very good job uh, throughout his Seattle uh, tenure. I tend to prefer managers who. I, I guess I'm just kind of a snob when I watch the game. I want. Oh, we love snobs that, here at the American yeah, Soccer Show. I, I, I want to watch teams that you know build through possession. It's just more fun to watch. I understand our player pool, as we are all understanding through this Greg Berhalter experiment, might not be adept at playing that way. Um, I have no idea if Brian Schmesser would be a good U.S. men's national team manager. If I'm being completely honest, he seems like a very good man manager, which is something that I I guess could be uh, very, very important yeah. for a national team. Uh, so I guess in that sense, you have a point, Emmett, but I'm not going to go that far. If I had to pick who I wanted the next U.S. Men's National Team manager to be, I would pick Jesse Marsh. That's just not going to happen. So, no, it's not going to happen. Yeah. I don't want Jesse Marsh. He's a, he's a you got to let him fly free. Yeah, no, I, I don't want to hinder. In the national no team. one wants to hinder Jesse Marsh, you know, less than me. I, I want him to do his thing. But, Br- yeah, Brian I'm just Schmetzer saying the dream scenario. Isn't... Jesse Marsh. He's not Pep Guardiola. As much as I love the guy, what he does... Yeah, he's not dogmatic. Yeah. And as we've seen, you know, I mean, he wasn't the coach when they finished first. Under him, they finished fourth, second, second, second in the league. And one of those times, they finished seventh overall, including the Eastern Conference, uh, when they finished a runners-up to Toronto in 2017. This is a guy, though, who knows how to play in a tournament format who knows how to play when it's one game, who says, okay, we're just going to go out there and get it done, which is what most of the international game is. How many teams at the international level are wildly successful playing beautiful, possession-based, free-flowing soccer? Because I look back to the years, there's really not that many. The U.S. certainly is not one of them, or does not appear to be. They shouldn't be. Because look at the teams around their rank and at their level, they don't play like that. The te- only teams I can think of are the ones that were heavily influenced by Pep Guardiola. So looking at Spain in the early 2010s and Germany in the mid-decade. Teams that were basically building off the Barcelona and Bayern Munich style. Yeah. Even then, Spain won their World Cup. Every game was a one-goal game. True. They did win. They, con- they, they controlled the ball. The other team didn't see the ball. 
but it wasn't like they were free-flowing, like, sending everyone forward. And they could possess out of the back because they were one of the best teams ever. Same thing with Germany. Sure. But then you see those two those teams in the next World Cup when they're not heavily influenced by Pep because he's moved on. And they crash out in the group stage. Because Well, the, the game has become way more just ruthlessly efficient now, too. Exactly. So you want you your team your to be ruthlessly anyway. efficient. You yeah. don't want to be giving any sort of risk to give the other team ruthless efficiency. And like I said, I love guys like Pep Guardiola. When I watched that Man City Liverpool game, I was just in it was I was in heaven. Yeah. I I, I was floating on a cloud because Pep because Jurgen didn't decide to play, well we're gonna huff it. He actually played out of the back better than Pep. So we had two teams who wanted to play with the ball and who could play around the other team. But that's the club level. That's the English Premier League. That's the top and level. There's no Americans the, maybe on either of those teams. Maybe the two best clubs on the planet right now. I think that'd be fair to say. And there's no Americans on that team. So nobody's getting that influence. The closest thing we have is Pulisic with Lampard. And I would say that's actually fairly close, but he's not the guy who's building out of the back. I want to see us get the ball to one side, get it over to Lovitz, play it directly into Pulisic. Pulisic, combine with our forward and get up the line, and boom, we're in the attacking third. Two passes. How about that? I mean, I think you've made good points for Brian Schmetzer. I think I wouldn't be, you know, entirely opposed to him potentially getting a look for the national team, but, and I think it's just about time we transition to it anyway. It's not going to matter, Emmett, because just ask Ernie Stewart, Greg Berhalter's job is completely safe. Doesn't matter what happens against Canada tomorrow night. So he did say that. Ernie Stewart came out and he very rarely addresses the media. But he said that no matter what, they're backing Greg Berhalter. Do you really expect him to say anything else? Of course they're going to back Greg Berhalter. What he's going to say? Yeah, Greg's not looking too good, guys. We think we're going to get rid of him. It's the extent of all the quotes that is alarming about it, where he says he, he likes what he's seen. He likes the progress. He specifically cited the first 25 minutes of the Mexico Gold Cup final as the quote-unquote progress he's seen in the style that they want to play, which is absurd. And then, my favorite part of all of the quotes, he went on to say, and there were some other games, which is just the most completely vague, like, what are you... I can't remember any games where we looked like we were really playing the way Verhalter wanted us to, except Cuba, maybe? maybe the first... Yeah, Cuba, which <laughs> doesn't count. Where just crush the, the opponent. First, 15 minutes of that Jamaica Gold Cup semi, I think it was, and then there was a lightning delay, and we came out after the lightning delay and looked very blah. But besides that, I I can't think of anything. Him defending the entire progress that he's seen with 25 minutes of play against the Mexico team that then completely blitzed us off the field for the remaining 70 minutes of the game, by the way, is absolutely ridiculous. Also, he felt the need. They called that conference call themselves U.S. Soccer, which is another reason why you shouldn't take it as, oh, what's Ernie Stewart going to say? He has to defend Greg Berhalter. He went out of his way to call a conference call with reporters so that he could defend Greg Berhalter, which tells me and should tell everyone that Greg Berhalter, as most people should suspect because he was hired by his own brother, has 100% completely safe job security. Imagine you're at a meeting. Right, your your boss is there, and there's a conference call to you know to the Tokyo office. I don't know where you work. I don't know where your other offices are, <laughs> and everybody's on it. You know, there's however many employees that work in your sector. I don't know how work works. Okay, 
Your boss goes on and says, hey, everybody, I just want to say I called this meeting and this conference call because I really think I'm backing Emmett. He's doing a good job. I'm liking what he's seeing there. I know he's under pressure, but I'm not going to fire him just yet. When you think about it, it kind of seems like they're gonna they're ready to fire me, right? But the arc, like the way, if you read some of his other comments, he it seemed more like we're fed up with these, you know, all the tweets, all the articles hating on our process and Burhalter and everyone. So we're going out of our way to support him. He had another quote saying that he was fed up of reading things about how the entire process went down of picking the coach and that it was down to his decision. Of course he was fed up with reading that. I hate reading all these things, but that doesn't make it seem like he specifically started the call, um, you know, as a potential, maybe we are going to fire Burhalter. It made it seem like we are specifically doing this call to address all these people who are driving us nuts and to basically tell you guys to F off. How... And I don't want to bring politics into it, but how much as Trump does it sound like? There were some other games, I don't remember, but they were very yeah, good. It was we, the were, most we were Trumpian very, very good. Yeah. Like, he, you know, the fake news, the failing American soccer show, coming after just, my hire and me, sad. Yeah, very sad. I didn't hear the audio, but like, just reading a quote of, there was the first 25 minutes against Mexico where I thought we played well. And then there were some other games. I assume his voice got really low. He was just, and then there were some other games, too. And some other games. Yeah. The tail off at the end is important. Yeah, exactly. There were no other games, Arnie. <laughs> and that it was first Cuba. 25 it was minutes. It was 7 nothing to Cuba. Yeah. As I said, there were no other actual games that were real soccer games. Now, I've said this before in this podcast, and if, if you haven't heard it before, you can always listen back to previous episodes. I don't know why you would listen to that garbage, <laughs> but it's I wasn't there. On. Don't bother. It's on the internet. It's forever. But I, I'm i somewhat of a supporter of what's been going on. And that kind of ties back to the, the lost generation we mentioned briefly with, with the impact. That the only way we were going to get results is to play gritty Brian Schmetzer ball. Which I'm fine with. I think that's, what the, that's why I hate the international game. And that's what you need to do if you want results. I'd rather see good soccer. I don't think we will. And I think that until we bring up the youth, until the guys like Sargent, like Pulisic, are 26, 27, you know, closer to the next World Cup cycle, not even this upcoming one, not even the, the, uh, the what was it, 2022 World Cup. That'd be the 2026 when we're hosting. On home soil. I don't think we can even think about this style being effective, being a... It's something we can lean on until we have these guys being veterans. Because when they're even at that point, even when they're 24, 25, 26, we're not going to have any guys who are 30, 32, 33. I don't know why I skipped 32. Did I? 31. <laughs> because you do need some of that veteran presence. You need a Michael Bradley. You need an, and I will always think this guy should be called an Alejandro Bedoya. And you're going to lack that at a certain period of time. But until that happens, we just, the talent isn't developed yet. We're relying on our captain to be a 20-year-old Weston McKinney. Oh, look, I, I agree in parts with what you're saying. There is definitely that lost generation that's basically our age in U.S. soccer, which is a shame. It's, the point um, is it's our fault. If yes, we had exactly. lived it's up to expectations yeah. if we and had been... Harder. <laughs> it's, you know, Zach Steffen apparently played in the same region as me. If there I had go. just, you know... Yeah, worth a good to, you and Zach. If I just unseated him at FC Delco... 
But yeah, I think, you know, I heard Bobby Warshaw, MLSsoccer.com guy, talking this week. He had a defense of Berhalter and the way they've approached basically the whole national team at this point that I thought he made some decent points. He talked about how, you know, Greg wants, Berhalter wants to have the club, the national team kind of operate like a club team in the way that he wants to play, obviously. And this is a style of play that takes a long time to implement. And because of that, most people would say that the national team, at the national team level, you shouldn't play that way. Um, but, but Which Warshaw's is what we're saying whole, right now. Yes, but Warshaw's entire point was that there's still some more time they should, you know, we should give the team more time. The Nations League is not as important, which, I mean, I do agree with that. Um, and really the most important thing is the hex. Uh, and then the other point he made was that, you know, a lot of people have criticized the player pool and the people that he's consistently called in. It seemed like that first camp, you know, that he had as coach was a January camp. And he and that camp is camp usually... Camp please. Yes, and that camp is usually, you know, a lot of MLS guys who get a look because they're in the offseason, but... Almost none of those players are really consistent players within the pool, or very few of them. And he's really leaned on that pool of players from the first camp um, and has gotten a lot of flack for calling in some of those guys over guys like Dwayne Holmes and some other guys who are playing in Europe. Alfredo um, Morales one who yeah, yeah, deserves a shout. He was just called in for the Canada match and Cuba match. Because he's been unbelievable he's for been very good. Dusseldorf. But, but Warshaw's point was that if you're trying to play this way and if you have, you know, a long leash, which I'm thinking Berhalter does, he's gotten some guarantees from Soccer House, um, then it makes sense to keep a similar pool of players so that you can implement this style. The only problem is there's been very little progress and it's been almost a year on it. So here's the thing. I, I agree with a lot of Warshaw. He made some good points that you, you're reiterating. Um, they're not necessarily your points. But I agree with it for the most part. When it comes to the amount of time you get as a club team versus an international team, you have to start looking at, like, almost exponential, not exponential, but ridiculously a large amount of time to equal that point. So if you think about how much, how a coach needs, you know, an entire offseason, and then even then several weeks into the season to get his style across. uh, Look no further than Frank DeBoer at Inter Milan and Crystal Palace. Wasn't given enough time. He couldn't implement his system, and they fired him early because he was terrible. Atlanta, it looked pretty similar early on, and then he started figuring things out. He started kind of adjusting and getting his ideas across. If you think about how many training sessions and games that it took him between, let's say, the beginning of the offseason, when he was hired even, to that kind of point where it settled down, you're looking at potentially a span of like three to four years of equivalent time with the international team, potentially more. Cause, and even then, some of them are camp cupcakes where you're not even getting the full pool. Although a lot, my point was a lot of those guys are on the full team. But yes, continue. Yeah, well, that was kind of the, the, the gist of it, that I'm okay with it because I don't, like I said, I don't think the Nations League is that big. Is that important? I think if we were ambitious enough, we would say let's win it, but it's obvious we're building towards something. And I respect the rebuild. Uh, I also was rooting for Canada in that game, and I <laughs> and I was right in that they won and how that how that game was going to go down, and I'm glad I did because now Canada is ranked, get this, 69th in FIFA <laughs> World Rankings, tied nice. to two other teams, I believe it's South Africa and Saudi Arabia. I knew you'd like that, uh, <laughs> but the important thing is it puts them sixth overall 
in CONCACAF. That's behind Mexico. United States are still second. Third, Jamaica. Fourth is Costa Rica. Fifth is Honduras. And then with that win, it takes them over Curacao. And uh, Panama, I believe, is just behind them to be the sixth. And that would put them in contention for the Hex. As I mentioned, if you're Canadian, and this is not the Canadian soccer show. This is the American soccer show. But they're our neighbors, and we love them, uh, you know, for all their issues. That would mean they have a legit chance to qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, they at least have a shot to get into the Hex, obviously. Yeah, if, if the Hex well, now they're in it. If it ends now, they're in it. it. Yeah, well, I don't know how the rankings are so odd. I don't know, you know, if they were to lose to us in this game and then based on other friendlies, I, I honestly don't know if it's like a lock that they get in. I don't know exactly how it is not the a FIFA lock. rankings work, but it seems like they have a very good chance, yes. And losing to us, I don't think would hurt them much in the FIFA rankings. They only have the one game left. Um, unless they go to the finals. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, Canada's in a good spot. Um, they were the better team the last time we played, for sure. And honestly, looking at this pool we have, and we should mention some of the injuries that we have um, to some key, key players, Christian Pulisic uh, being the most important of those players, it looks like uh, Canada's going to have a very good opportunity once again. And I'll be honest, this is the American Soccer Show. We love America. We love soccer and we love show. Huge fan of show. show. When it comes to fans of show, there are none bigger than us. (laughs) None better. Here at the American Soccer Show, the home of lasting entertainment, (laughs) um, I do want to say that I really like the Canadian players and how they play. And when you look at the national team, let's just go through some of the roster. I don't know if there are that many players that induce that kind of excitement. Obviously, Alfonso Davies, you could compare to Christian Pulisic. Pretty pretty evenly even yeah i think that's pretty fair comparison and beyond that junior hoylet do we really have another winger who's at that level who can who's played at the premier league level no i mean we are jonathan david who's we are incredibly incredible. weak at winger and really an attack in general outside of pulisic incredibly weak they are significantly stronger on top than we are there's a lot of places defense is not one of them so we're gonna start from the back with no stefan we do have guzan sean johnson and Matt Turner. I use Guzan on just a single last name basis because we're assuming he's going to be the starter. He did yeah, not play I would, I would in that last Canada starts. game. Yeah. If you want to play from the back, I don't think there's any better keeper in the pool than Brad Guzan. As good as Stefan is with his feet as a goalkeeper. Hmm? You think better than Sean Johnson with his feet? With his, uh, It's a tight one because Sean Johnson, Johnson does have more goals. More, I think J- Sean Johnson, yeah, definitely is way more likely to have a howler than Guzan. I still think Guzan starts the match because he's more reliable regardless. Well, I was just saying, specifically with the feet, playing out of the back, Guzan is like an 11th field player. And I think that's important when you're playing out of the back because if you can force someone to press you and then take them out of the game, you're now playing 10 versus 9. I think you're being a little generous to Guzan. But yes, he is is pretty good. Have you seen the way he plays with Atlanta? That guy consistently puts passes together. He's under pressure. He clips it to a fullback. Agreed to disagree a bit on that one, but yeah. I don't think I've seen Guzan. I mean, sometimes he overhits him and puts him out of bounds. Yeah, which is he better does than underhitting him, and giving him I away. I would say more Steph- than sometimes. Okay, well, he doesn't underhit him and give him away like Stefan does. And That's I, fair. like I said, Stefan's actually pretty good with his feet. Yeah. Uh, Guzan is the guy in the U.S. pool. If you want to play out of the back with your feet, just going to put it out there. I also think Guzan is a highly underrated keeper. You know, this is a Premier League level talent with Aston Villa before. Was, was Aston Villa a real Premier League team at that time, though, Emmett? 
Oh, when he first took over, they were. They were a solid yeah. team. Okay. Yeah. And then they had those rough, rough years, of course, with Remy Gard, that manager of Montreal we love so much. Carlos Heel, the newcomer of the year that we love so much. <laughs> All these guys really struggled there, and he was still a solid presence when things were going downhill. Defenders. John Brooks will be there. Are we going to see him? Yeah, is Brooks he going to play for once? Let's pray he didn't get hurt today at training or something or warm up tomorrow. But he has to. I mean, if he's healthy, he has to stop. I mean, I know Burt Alter has really leaned on Tim Ream, but most of that is because he wants a left-footed center back there, and the only other left-footed center back is Brooks, and he's always injured. So I would think we definitely see Brooks tomorrow. I feel like we haven't seen Brooks since the 2014 World Cup. Yeah. Uh, Listen, I just want to put it out there. The last manager who I've seen who insists on a left-footed center back playing on the left side was Jose Mourinho at Man United with Marcus Rojo. So I'm just going to leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. Reggie Cannon, Serginho Dest, of course, that uh, absolute coup that we got. Dest, uh, Nick... watch. It's over. We landed him. We should mention. I forgot we didn't mention that we got yeah. Dest. There were some issues, technical issues, with our last podcast, which did not yeah, come out. And we're not going to mention why they happened, because <laughs> they were someone's... You know, they were the fault te- te- of the Philadelphia Union. They were technically, the so, there was, you know, so, preventable. We'll put it as preventable. <laughs> but we got Dest. Absolute coup. Now, he's listed as a defender. And we've talked about this before. Before we get to the rest of the defenders. But I'm going to put it out there now. I think it would be absolutely insane to play this guy, who I think when you look at this roster, is the most talented player at fullback. Because nowhere in the world is your best player your fullback and i'm sure people will come out if we had people who came out and tweeted at me <laughs> at e mcconnell 92 if you really want to go at me uh and, and i'll tell you you're wrong because liverpool of course their fullbacks are great but it's more in that how they play that they get more freedom to to do those things obviously sadio mane and mo Salah and roberto Firmino are better players you wouldn't put trent alexander arnold at attacking mid and say he's even better now but I think we could take Dest and we put him at the wing or attacking mid or midfield, and we would say, oh, we're a better team now. Yeah, I mean, when we talked about this last week and we argued about it because I def- I felt like we should. Multiple times, by the way. Yes, multiple, multiple times, times argued about it. Shout out to your uh, technical skills on the podcast. It's um, our producer's fault. Yes, very true. The The producer who will not be named. Um, but yeah, I think Dest, I liked him more as a fullback. I think more so than you. You're more of a Lovitz fan than I am. I, I, well, we need Lovitz in there. I just don't think they've played Love. They've put Lovitz in the best spots to be successful. I think he's good going forward, but they haven't really allowed him to do that. Adest is extremely, you know, he's been solid at left back. I know he got toasted that one play that got memed everywhere against Mexico, but I. I oh, you mean think... in the Champions League against Christian Pulisic when he got that yeah, assist that was, for Chelsea? That was completely overblown. He got he rinsed. Didn't get he didn't get rinsed on that play. That was. Regardless, agree or disagree on that, but the Mexico okay, play he did he didn't get, get rinsed. completely rinsed. Yeah, but the in general, in terms of his performance, I thought he was solid. I thought it was you know refreshing to see us finally have a left back who's creative on the ball and can build out of the back. He's in, Berhalter's insisted on playing this way, so it makes sense. However, seeing that now Pulisic is out for this match because of the injury, I do think it may be worth trying Dest on the wing because you look at I mean we have three wingers on the roster. Boyd, Morris, and Ariola. None of these guys are, you know, game changers out on the wing at the international. You could play level. Sebastian Lechette there. You could. I'm hoping that he plays. I wouldn't. Yeah, I would neither. Um, and we could get to that later, but I'm hoping we see Lechette finally start a game as one of those dual number eights that Berhalter loves to play, but he, you know, seems insisted on 
bring LeJet off the bench. But, yeah, in terms of deaths, I think in this little camp specifically, these games against Canada and Cuba, it might not be the worst idea to try him out on the wing so we get some creativity up there. I mean, just you don't have to look that far to see players who put on the wing because they're better than other options or immediate impacts. Look at Hakimi on Borussia Dortmund. Or even Guerrero on Borussia Dortmund. And this isn't a Dortmund team that has an American soccer show, so we'll keep it brief, that doesn't have attacking assets on the wing. They have Jaden Sancho, Julian Brandt, they have Marco Royce, and they're still playing guys like Guerrero and Hakimi on the wing because they're that good. Why waste them at fullback? Alfonso Davies plays fullback for his club, like Dest does. I will bet you several nickels that Alfonso Davies will not play fullback for Canada because when he's on the wing, he's their best player. At fullback, he would be an average player for them. And I think that's the same thing with Dest. Unless we're playing like Liverpool, where we're saying our fullbacks are going to be massively influential in our creativity, I don't see why we would hamstring ourselves by having Dest at fullback. And as you mentioned, without Pulisic, this is probably the best game to do. Yeah, I mean, I think those are slightly unfair comparisons. I mean, Canada is way more reliant on Davies than we would be on Dest, I would think, to create things up top. But imagine if Pulisic started getting played at right wing back for Chelsea. But he's playing not, a back three when he put him there. It's completely different because Pulisic came up as a winger. His entire career has played winger. Dest came up as a fullback, and his entire career has played fullback. So I want to put it out there. There's nobody yeah. in the world who's a natural fullback. I'm just saying he's played so, you know, his, entire, his entire professional career. And on the youth teams, he only played full. He, like, he just played fullback. He so did play not, in the U-20 World Cup at the right wing for several games and was quite good there. He played on the wing at the U-20 World Cup? He played some right wing there, yeah. Well, <laughs> I take it back then, Evan. <laughs> but but still, you're, you're correct for the most part, right? Yeah, for the most for, part, he, he's a fullback. And I just think, you know... But again, nobody's a natural fullback. We, they get put there out of necessity because they have no one else. We also we have need, others. I personally think we need... A, you compare it to Borussia Dortmund. You know, Borussia Dortmund has Nico Schultz at left back. We don't have Nico Schultz at left back for the national team. We have, Dan, we have even better. We have Daniel Lovitz, friend yeah. of the show. <laughs> friend of the show, Daniel Lovitz. And we, we talked about him a little bit before we started. And you, you mentioned it briefly here that you think he's a bit held back in his ability to go forward. He does have a f- tremendous left foot. He has several free kick goals for Montreal Impact. Yeah, I mean, I think Lovitz, I, as I've said, we differ on him. I don't think he's good enough to be starting for the team. I do think he's a good death option. Hey, I, hey, I think, watch it. I think he's gotten too much crap on Twitter from fans and stuff for his performance. I And as you mentioned, I don't think he's been put in the best position to succeed when he's been out on the field. It seems like Burhalter is very set on having kind of an unbalanced fullback situation where one fullback Which I like. Yeah, which is fine, which one fullback has the license to go forward, and that's been whoever's playing right fullback, whether it be Reggie Cannon or DeAndre Yedlin, and whoever's playing left back is basically staying home at all times. But really, for me, the reason you have Lovitz on the roster is, like you mentioned, he's got that sweet left foot. He kind of reminds me of Brad Davis, except he plays left back instead of, you know, further up the field. Brad Davis was left mid, but... He's got that sweet left foot. He's good, you know, good on set pieces, like he said. And in late game situations, you can bring him in. He's a guy who can serve balls into the box when you desperately need a goal. So I don't think it's the worst thing in the world to have Lovitz on the roster, as some people have mentioned. And you know, it's it's an asset to have someone with a sweet left foot. But I still would prefer to have Dest over him, obviously in the long run at left back, because I do think 
although we don't have any real wingers here in the pool currently. I think with Pulisic, some of these younger kids coming up, you got Gio Reyna, Ulianez, um, uh, Ledesma was more of a central player, but some of these guys are some of these young players that we're expecting big things from are wingers. So hopefully the winger pool gets. Freddie Adu, he's still young, right? Yeah, Freddie Adu still got some. Freddie Adu's got still some young. Left. Yeah, he's got some years left. I think he's actually under 30, so surprise, surprise. <laughs> but what we see with Lovitz is, and I think it's the same thing with Montreal, he, he seems like he's given more of a like positional stability. Like, be in the right position. Don't need to be put in, into a spot where you need to run up the field or back the field. And I think now there's this misconception that he's not an athletic player. And I've played with Lovitz, and that's why he's a friend of the show. Uh, he was formerly a winger, uh, both you know club, high school, and at the uh, college level. And he was a tremendous, tremendous winger. He even got drafted into MLS as a, as a winger in the early second round. But at Toronto, they basically they didn't play with wingers. They had Sebastian Giovinco and they had Josie Altidore. So they tried to turn him into a wingback. And I have an article on this, if you're interested in it, uh, on Prost America, on kind of his transition and how he's ended up building himself from a winger to a wingback. And now to a fullback who, on the national team, plays as a third center back. It's quite the transition for... It's almost like Bastian Schweinsteiger. Went from being a winger to a center midfielder to a center back for the Chicago Fire. Whether or not you agree with that, that's what happened. (laughs) I would like to see Lovitz, because he rarely gets beat for pace on the dribble. If you look back, it really doesn't happen. Let him take more risks. Let him get forward. Let him try to push the ball up the wing and put in a cross. Because normally he gets it. And his first look is, I got to either pull it back to our defender and swing it across, or up the line to whether it's Montreal, Ignacio Piatti, or if it's here, it's Christian Pulisic. Can he get a little bit more freedom? Take a risk and get beat. Like, and honestly, I like it that Des does that. He takes a risk. He gets beat. It's okay to get beat. This is the Nations League. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I'll say is, I'm at left side. We don't quite have the mobility cover of the right side. We've got Aaron Long. He's much more mobile than our left-sided counterparts. Tim Ream and John Brooks don't quite have the pace to make up for it. So I think that explains even further why Berhalter's got that tendency to kind of rein in the left back and not give him a lot of responsibilities going forward. And as, as we mentioned, it'll probably be a lopsided uh, with the right back going forward. I'd prefer a lopsided left back going forward with just kind of the – natural left-footed abilities of a lot of players. I mean, there, there's some sort of weird thing about left-footed players. You, you just look at people just, who have just crazy just left better. foots. They just they look just, better playing the game, Emmett. And I'm not left-footed, at, I'm right-footed, but lefties just look better playing the game. It's 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 similar with baseball and pitching. Like, lefties have this weird motion that just makes them better than everybody basketball, else. Same, basketball, same thing. They, look, they just look cooler. It's uh, You look at the people with, like, tremendous rocket shots and, like, Eight out of ten of them are left-footed, like Hulk, sure. Gareth Bale, Leo Messi. And the ones who's, who the ball's just glued to their feet, same thing. Messi, Musa Dembele, those, Eric Lamella, those guys, they're just left foot. So uh, we kind of went through most of the defenders uh, who got called up. John Brooks, Reggie Cannon, Sergino Dest, uh, Nick Lima, who we haven't mentioned, will probably play a little backup here along with Cannon. Aaron Long, Dan Lovitz, Tim Ream, DeAndre Edlin, Walker Zimmerman. I think we've kind, well, kind of summed it real up. Quick. Yeah. Why are there nine defenders on this roster? Is it nine? I think it's nine. It's nine defenders, six midfielders, five forwards. Now that also would lead towards maybe Des to play some winger because that just seems insane to bring nine defenders. Now, of course, 
on the American Soccer Show here, we are rarely wrong. Yeah. We true. say these things like Sergino Des should play winger. And we get it right when he goes in the wing and he scores a crazy goal and we're all like, well, look at the American, you know, tweet at me and tell me how yeah. right I am, people. When he doesn't, we never said that. <laughs> how many times have we been, have we been wrong recently? Cause I, <laughs> maybe it's selective memory. I can't remember many. But let's... We kind of mentioned Brad Guzan will probably get the, the edge and goal. In the back, I think you've mentioned, we'll probably see DeAndre Yedlin on the right. Aaron Long with a little bit more mobility as the right-sided center back. Brooks, Brooks or Reem, yeah. depending if depending on injury, really. That's about it. As a left-sided center back, and then probably Dest as the left back as much as... So. The, the only thing I'll say, I don't think it's maybe quite as clear-cut as people think that Yedlin will start over Reggie Cannon. I feel like Yedlin was... He was okay i guess i didn't think he was great against canada the last match and cannon's i thought he's in every game he's played he's been in one of the bright spots i would say so i wouldn't be too surprised if cannon got the nut here's some more great stuff from the american soccer show because i'm with you i I think yedlin's been good for newcastle recently and that's kind of what i'm basing this off of yeah and And it's the american soccer show so we'll bring it back but he's not been as great for the national team for for a while now really hasn't been up to stuff Nick Lima has actually been very, very good. Reggie Cannon had an impressive couple games. So maybe not the worst idea in the world, of course. There's a good chance they'll be going up against Alfonso Davies or Junior Hoylett. Yeah. So some tough wingers, uh, even if they those guys don't play, there's attacking talent in that Canada side. Honestly, Yetland's been pretty good as a right winger for the national team uh, kind of earlier in his career. So uh, maybe we'll see that. He can run. Okay. I, I don't think his crossing ability is good enough. But yeah, we are short at winger and he's got great pace. So maybe. Uh, maybe a guy late in the game. I, I will say Yedlin's one of those few guys who can really only play wingback. He's yeah. not really a good fullback. He's not really a good winger. But at wingback, where he's got a little bit less defensive responsibility, less offensive responsibility, he can thrive. Into the midfield, uh, where we can start wrapping this up. Sebastian Lichette, Weston McKenney, Alfredo Morales, as we mentioned before, being so good in Germany, and kind of maybe that six we all needed. Uh, Michael Bradley, obviously, given the break with... MLS Cup Final, not giving a break, Christian Roldan from the Seattle Sounders, he's in the roster, Will Trapp, and Jackson Ewell. I guess we'll start this time with who we think we'll be playing. Obviously, Weston McKenney. Yeah, he's a lock. Uh, he's a lock. He's in there. I think Alfredo Morales has gotten way, way too much talk, way too much credit in the past, and especially his performances, to not get a start in this one as yeah. that defensive mid. Yeah, I would agree. I, I think we'll see him. Um, I'm not, and I'm not opposed to it. I mean, I think most of the other center mids haven't nailed down their spot, really. Um, I, I I definitely think we see Morales start this match, to be honest. I don't, want, I don't want to call him a lock, but yeah, I think we see him. McKenney's the only lock here, to be fair. Yeah. But competition for Morales is Jackson Ewell, who's done a, he's done a job as a well, six and, for the national and team. Will, and Will Trapp. Who I forgot about lost. Will Trapp. He, correct, Will Trapp. So there's actually three guys who could play there. The question, I think, okay, so let's assume McKenney and Morales are in. Yeah. And we can maybe go back to thought experiment about other players and when we're finished. Who plays alongside of them? For me, this is, like, just this, this has to be Sebastian Legette. I mean, every time, he always comes in as a sub. Maybe he can't do it for 90 minutes. I, I don't know. But he looks, you know, the most comfortable on the ball of any of our midfielders. He can make plays in half spaces. I'm afraid he's going to start Roldan again. Roldan was, uh, you know, I just don't particularly rate him. I don't want to sound like I'm just dogging him all the time, but I just, I don't think he's quite up to snuff as a national team player. I, I thought he was very poor in the Canada match. Maybe the worst player on the field for us. 
Um, so if he starts again, I'm going to be very upset at him, and I'm desperately hoping it's Sebastian Legette in that spot. If he starts, you can be sure to check out Pat on Twitter. Yes, uh, I will be ranting about it on Twitter, at pmurphy929. 929, a good formation to be playing uh, yes. if you have enough men. Great birthday, great formation. Oh, is that what it is? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Good to know for the for the next time it rolls around in about 10 months. I'm with you. I don't think Legette will play. I think it will be rolled on because we've How? seen from Berhalter. How can you watch the last game? Oh, God. I'll be furious, Emmett. Furious. I, and that's what happened. The American Soccer Show, we're not afraid to have our emotions get the better of us. Because that's what this is all about, is passion. Twitter uh, rants. How do you, how do you say uh, passion in Spanish? Passion. Passion. We need to have that passion, which the national team hasn't really had, but the American soccer shows had plenty of. Personally, I want to see Jackson Ewell, because I don't think there are any other guys who can press the way Ewell does, who can play in a system that isolates his players the way Berhalter does with his national team, other than Ewell with Almeida's San Jose Earthquakes. He's mostly only played as a six with the national team. Yeah, oh, no, entirely only played as a six. And what would happen is him playing, is it fits into what Berhalter wants when he plays Roldan, is that Roldan plays as an eight that's almost more of a supportive six that allows McKenney to get forward, because he wants McKenney to get runs into the box, to get ahead. The problem is, usually when we have Bradley playing, you need another midfielder to support him, because he, he if he gets isolated, it's an issue on counterattacks. It's an issue when he gets pressed. He needs someone else. He needs, you know, in his prime years, it was a geriatric Jermaine Jones to do that. Kyle Beckerman. Exact great shout. <laughs> you, the way he plays with Yule, and Yule does this a lot for the San Jose too, with Judson. Judson's running around trying to be a maniac like Michael Bradley and be the man at defensive midfield. And there's just Jackson Yule who keeps things calm and is always there. The ball's in the attack. He's the eight. He's there. He's ready to recycle it. When they getting ready to be, they're being countered, and the six gets caught out because he runs out to the play fullback for some reason. Ewell is there. On the other hand, I would like to see Letjet. The problem is, as I mentioned, Berhalter wants to allow McKenney to be almost like a ten, to get ahead and to get and make those late runs in the box. And I think because of that, we won't see Letjet. And there is that long rant kind of tied to a bow that I could have said in about 10 seconds if I needed to. No, I mean, I, look, I think you made good points. I like Yule a lot as a player. I don't think we're going to oh, see him. Oh, I love him. Yule. I, I don't think, I think we're going to see him a fantastic in that spot player. Because like we said, it seems like Warhol only rates him um, as a six. The other thing I'd say is I kind of want someone in that spot playing a little more forward, which is why I want Legit. I'm not sure Yule can, you know, he's never really played that high up the pitch, but I also, I know what you're saying with he wants McKenney to be this guy who plays as kind of the 10 and makes the late runs into the box, but doesn't it almost make more sense? It feels like he's better making deeper runs into the box, being more of a number eight. Yeah, absolutely. unmarked runs into the box. They That's why it doesn't him, make sense. They played him up top last match against Canada in, in terms defensively. You know, they sit in that incredibly boring, I should mention, 4-4-2 block that gets no pressure whatsoever on the center back. So Stephen Vittoria and whoever was the stiff playing center back next to him for Canada can just ping diagonal. It could be Alfonso line. Davies with how bad yeah. that defense is. Yeah. It, it, well, <laughs> I digress on that. But Mc- <laughs> We're Mc- not going to get into that. McKenney's just, you know, he, he's playing up top basically in this defensive press. So anytime the ball turns over, it's like he can't make late runs into the box. He's at the tip of the attack force. So He's already waiting there. Yeah. It doesn't really make 
any sense to me. And I th- I do think McKenney has defensive limitations. He's not as good as you want a traditional number eight to be. But I also think he did play you know, center back for Schalke recently. He did, and, and and I think he's gotten a little better at it at the club level. And Morales is a guy who cleans up a lot of stuff. It's not like when you put him next to Michael Bradley, Michael Bradley is not mobile enough to cover at this point in his career for all of McKenney's defensive lapses. But Morales is. And a guy like Tyler Adams, who, if again, I will mention Tyler Adams' watch, will he ever be healthy? We don't know. But those guys are mobile Did enough. Did he ever to really play? Him. That's the yeah. question. <laughs> Was he ever really here? Like John Brooks, did Tyler Adams ever actually play soccer, or is he a figment of our imagination? Tweeted us, let, it, let us know if you actually have a memory of him playing, or if it was a That supporter shield was real in my heart, Emmett. I believe it was a Captain America shield. Yeah. It's a funny story that they had yes. on The Athletic. Uh, I'm with you. I think McKenney, as an 8, should be making late runs into the box, not be a 10, making early runs, and that would be when he was at his best. And that's with a guy like Legette, who's kind of at 8 slash 10, who's getting more forward, who's interchanging, and then it's McKenney making those late runs. Exactly. Uh, I would like to see that. I don't think we will. Let's go to the forwards now. As we mentioned, uh, we got almost all these guys at some point earlier. Paul Ariola, Tyler Boyd. Jordan Morris, Josh Sargent, and the one we missed out. For some reason, we didn't mention the star striker for the national team, Giassi Zardes. Yes. Pardon me for forgetting to mention Giassi. I will say, I think this one will be pretty straightforward. It'll be Jordan Morris, in terms of the wingers. I think it'll be Jordan Morris and Paul Ariola. Gives you Tyler Boyd as, I guess, uh, kind of a late game-changing sub who could maybe get a goal if he's on his day, although he has not shown much for us. And then up top, you know, I, oh, here it is. Moment it, it, of truth. It has to be Sargent. I, I think it will be. It seems like Berhalter's kind of passed the baton to him in the last game. But we should say Sargent was bad in the Canada game, like most of the teams. So, I don't know. Maybe Zardes will get a spot back. Right, but we also mentioned that with Z- with Sargent playing, he gets a free pass. As much as everyone complains about that game and Berhalter, at least they were never going to hear, why did you play Zardes? Because as yeah. we mentioned, playing Zardes is like playing... With 10 men. Yes. You just have a guy who you can't really play through. Which, I again, I think that's fine. You no, have it's, forwards it's like, like playing that. with 10 Mo- men and a single foot that's glued to the 6-yard box that if you hit it at the exact right angle, the ball will go into the net. It's like if you're playing backyard <laughs> soccer and you have a power-up where you can just immediately get a shot on... When you can cross it, you can just immediately direct it somewhere. It's a foot that just magically shows up somewhere and you can tap it on goal, but that's about it. It's maybe unfair to compare him to Mauro Riccardi, who's an actual soccer player, but he's kind of like that. He, he'll pop up in the box and tap it in. Yeah, I, I, that incredibly unfair to Mauro Riccardi. Yeah. It's a terrible, terrible analogy, but I'm going to stick by it. Yeah. Fair so enough. Riccardi now has like 12 absolute, goals in 13 games we'll, we'll for PSG. Him, we'll call him an absolute destitute man's Mauro Riccardi, yes. I think I can do better than that. Maybe Arcadius Milik. Ooh, yeah, maybe. Uh, still, a destitute man's Arik Milik. At least Zardes can finish, though. Yeah. Sorry, fans of Napoli. They're not, things aren't going so well. Yeah. Again, I think it's Sergeant. If Berhalter just doesn't want to get some some uh, some angry comments on Twitter after the game. I'm sure he's he's muted most Twitter accounts at this point. He should. <laughs> and if you want to play out of the back, again, I don't see why you want Zardis. Yeah, again, I think if you're a national team, yeah. he, he fits most the way most national teams play. You get the ball up quickly, down the wing, put it in a cross, hope he taps it in. I'm fine with that, but we don't play that way. Yeah, 
And the other thing I should mention, we, I think we should mention, just between these two guys, yes, it, you know, it gives Berhalter uh, kind of an out. No one can rag on him if he doesn't start Zardes for starting Zardes. We should also just say Sargent's just better than Zardes. Like, like if we're just looking at, like, who's the best striker? We only have two. Who's better? Who should start this match? It's Josh Sargent. Hands down. Well, hold on. I'm going to stop you there. Who has more MLS goals? Yeah. <laughs> the, the single determinant factor in who should make the national team. Ah, but then Sargent has more Bundesliga goals. Okay, so they're even. <laughs> yeah, well, they're tied. It's a tie. Flip a coin. Okay, who has brighter hair? <laughs> Josh. Also, also a coin flip. Pretty close. <laughs> that bleach blonde Zardis hair that we all love to see on the field, and that <laughs> beautiful ginger Josh Sargent. Uh, he, he gets away. He'll get away with it playing Sargent. I do think if you want to play with the ball, Sargent's the better pick. Yes. Honestly, I'm going to coin toss here because Sargent didn't play too much recently with Bremen after having a nice long stretch of games. Uh, when it comes to Zardes, just look at who the leading goal scorer amongst American players in MLS was this year. <laughs> because at least last year, you could point at Jesse Zardes had 19 MLS goals. Under Greg Berhalter, of course. Yeah. This but year, this not year, so much. Like, Columbus was a lot worse, so you give him some credit. But it was Chris Wondolowski was the highest goal Wando. scorer with 16 goals. He's got respect on Wando's name. Not still, only come back Still to better MLS, than Zardes, gotta, by the way. Well, yeah, that was my whole point. Yeah. Need more goals. Honestly, and again, you know, we have these, we have great takes in the American Soccer Show. Let's play Jordan Morris as a forward, as a kind of drifting wide forward. Jordan Morris, Paul Ariola, Serginho Dest. Well, then you're playing the. You cannot play Berhalter's, you know, preferred. No, we play. You know, no, we play Emmett's rag. We play Emmett's ragtag American soccer show. Yeah, I soccer. mean th- that's fair, and at the same time, there's no way Jordan Morris is as bad in build-up play as Jesse's artist, or no way he's worse. So, I mean, it's basically the same as Blaine's artist. Yeah. And it, we're not asking Morris to be a nine here. That's the beauty of this. It would be asking Morris to be Anton Antoine Griezmann type, Roberto Firmino, not necessarily a false nine. Be, being very was, generous to our U.S. players today. <laughs> I mean, what nations should I compare them to? I mean, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm trying to compare them to people, players people know. Yeah, that's fair. I could say Darwin Quintero, but he didn't <laughs> really do much. That would uh, that would be saying Jordan Morris would go disappearing for 85 minutes for the game. That's not <laughs> too helpful to compare things. Shots, to. shots fired. Of course, new Houston Dynamo player Darwin yeah. Quintero. We should mention he did transfer for a decent sum to. From Minnesota to Houston, I think it's a good move for Montreal to get rid of the dead weight. Contero, obviously, a fantastic player in his day, but when he was off it, which seemed to be recently, a whole lot. He looked like a Houston Dynamo player, so it's rather fitting. Yeah, very fitting. Well, uh, I think we kind of summed up uh, the national team. Unless he, you know, I know you always have... Some angry takes. I got more of some defensive <laughs> takes, or maybe people call them crazy ones. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, I I think I'm I'm all ranted out at least for now. We we can check back in after the inevitable loss to Canada and disappointing performance. And show I don't think they lose anyway. this game. Yeah. I think they draw. Yeah, well, that's a draw is a loss because if they lo- if they draw, they're not going to the Nations League final. So a draw is also a loss in my book. Listen, I just want Canada in the hex. Canada, I got called. I, I believe they traitor, will make the hex even if they lose to us. Benedict Arnold. That's true. I called. Uh, you. I called you so Judas. What, what are some other famous uh, Ollie from Game of Thrones? I called you Judas. Judas, that's a good one. Yeah, the most famous I like, of all. I like traitors, Ollie. Perhaps. Yeah. Well, yeah. 
my, I'm really blanking on some good traders here. <laughs> oh, we got all soon the good ones. Soon they'll be like, Emmett, you, you yeah. classic Emmetted this up. Uh, if we do want to compare the U.S. teams in their rankings, we're looking at Ukraine, Wales, Austria, Venezuela. Not a lot of teams who have a good comparison for me to say, you know, creative tactically. I mean, Ukraine's whole basis is we're going to play a 5-4-1 four, and defend. Yep. So, I don't think we'll see that kind of creativity from the U.S. because you really only get it when you look up to the top rankings. Teams like Belgium, the way Lukaku played in the World Cup. That's what I'm thinking of. Exactly the kind of play that I'd like to see. Uh, but that's it. We're out of time this week on the American Soccer Show. Uh, be on the lookout because if Canada pulls it out, and at this point I'm not pulling for Canada anymore. I want the U.S. to win because I think a Nations League title would look a little bit better than Canada and the Hex. Uh, and that was kind of the whole thing that I was banking on before, but it, it, I do want Canada and the Hex. They're going to make I, Yeah. It's close now. Now they have a shot. Before, there wasn't much of a shot. They needed a result like that. But here on the American Soccer Show, not only are we the big critics of the, big critics of the American national team, but we're also out of time. Uh, if, if you want, you can check us out on iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify, really wherever you find podcasts. I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you have a place to listen to, spot, to podcasts, so you know... Uh, you don't need me telling you. You can check out past episodes. Please give us a review. Uh, share, subscribe. I don't know what the things you do with podcasts, but do all those good things. Until next time, I'm Emmett McConnell alongside Pat Murphy, signing off. Bye.